Hi, travelers. You can listen to us on your travels on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and more. Make sure you check out our link tree in the description of this episode where you can find the links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. Okay, today is Thursday, September 14th. Good show today, guys. We have Valerie, Valerie Preoctor from WBAL in Baltimore. Going to talk all things Baltimore Ravens with her, DK Dobbins injury, Orioles, uh, great season as they head into the playoffs here in October. We're going to start with Monday night football, though. Uh, big news. Obviously, Aaron Rodgers went down, Achilles injury, out for the rest of the year, maybe even his career uh, we recorded Tuesday's episode uh, Monday before the game. Didn't get to talk about it much on Tuesday, but let's do it right now, guys. Let's get yeah. into it. Is Aaron Rodgers done for the – is he going to retire after this, do you think, or do you think he has to come back and uh, he doesn't want to end his career like this? I think he's going to come back for one more year probably. I still think he wants to play with the Jets. I still think uh, – you still think the Jets players really, really like Rodgers. And as they said, I mean – he was talking to Garrett Wilson saying, you know, sorry, kid, I, I can't play. But I I do think he'll come back for at least one more year with the Jets. But this could be it. This could be it. I wouldn't be shocked either way what happens. Yeah. I think he comes back next year. I think if this happened 20 years ago, it would be the end of his career. But modern medicine's come a long way, and I do think he'll be able to play next year. And I think Aaron Rodgers is one of those guys. He's not going to go out like this. He's not going to want his last image on a football field to be, you know, tearing his Achilles. So I do think he'll come back next year. And it's going to be interesting to see how he plays because a big part of why Aaron Rodgers is great is his ability to move around. Is he going to be more of a statue? Is he going to not be able to move around as much? Is he not going to be able to scramble? Like, he may have to alter the way he plays. My guess is, though, you know, if he was leading toward retirement before the darkness retreat last year, which it sounds like he was doing, I think he's going to be incredibly motivated to come back this time around. So I don't think he's done playing in the NFL. I think he comes back next year. This is Zach Wilson's team now. Uh, I don't. They say they're looking for other quarterbacks. I don't think they're going to find another quarterback personally. I, I want to get your guys' thoughts on that. I know that the team is calling a lot of people. They're not going to find another quarterback. This is Zach Wilson's team now. Uh, not the same Zach Wilson as last year, but the Jets still are not going to go far with him. He played pretty well Monday night, though. 140 yards, one touchdown, and only one pick. Um, but, yeah, what do you guys think? Is, are they going to be able to find a replacement for Aaron Rodgers? I think, though, I don't think they will. I don't think they're going to find a replacement. Like I know there's guys out there. I think Jameis Winston is a guy that people have talked about. Gardner Minshew is a guy that people have talked about. But the list of free agent quarterbacks, Carson Wentz, Matt Ryan, it's just not an appealing list. So I think they're probably going to go ahead and ride with Zach Wilson and hope that he's better than he was a year ago. And frankly, Zach Wilson doesn't have to be all that great because the Jets have a great defense and they've got a great running game. Everything except quarterback is a top-level AFC contender and maybe a Super Bowl contender. I think they're going to go with Zach Wilson. They're going to hope that he's better than he was last year. Frankly, couldn't be much worse. And if Zach Wilson just kind of does what he did on Monday night, which is, you know, manage the game, don't turn the ball over. That's the biggest thing. Don't turn the football over. As long as he just kind of handles the game, I think he's, they've got enough weapons around him to survive. I don't know if they're a Super Bowl team without Aaron Rodgers. I don't think they are. But I think they can be a playoff team. Yeah, Zach Wilson definitely does not, does not have to be Superman uh, for the Jets to go far this year. Just like you said, Zach, has to get the ball down the field and really just take care of the football Let's talk about the other side of the ball, though. I mean, Jets definitely show that they were a 
Super Bowl caliber team if Rodgers played on Monday Night Football. But Josh Allen, I think Josh Allen lost this game for the Bills. What do you guys think about this? He had a horrible game. Uh, three uh, three turnovers. Um, Josh Allen now also with his overtime loss is 0-5 in overtime. Has yeah. never won an overtime game in his career. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think about this? Did Josh Allen lose this game for the Bills? Yeah, he did. I think that's telling. <clears throat> he turned the ball over four times as well as three, four, a yeah. fumble and three interceptions uh, by Jordan Whitehead for the Jets. But the Jets' defense is very good. They have a top top five defense, maybe even a top three defense, but they do not have the offensive line. I think that got Rodgers out of the game, That definitely that injury. But they don't have an offensive line. They don't have a quarterback. They do have Garrett Wilson at wide receiver who made a really good catch, really great catch, basically to save the game for the Jets. They do have some weapons on offense, and they have a great defense. But their offensive, but without an offensive line and a quarterback, that hurts. Is it time to have the Josh Allen is overrated conversation? Because this man leads the league in turnovers since he entered it in 2018. I think it's now 84 turnovers after he had three interceptions and a fumble the other day. He got Jordan Whitehead paid. I mean, Jordan Whitehead's uh, incentive was three interceptions in a season, and he get two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well, he did that all in one night, so he got his money thanks to Josh Allen and. This is one of those games that all Josh Allen had to do was take care of the ball, don't really press, and the Bills were going to win this game rather handily. And it seemed like when Rodgers went out, he pressed even more, and I really don't know why. And we've seen this now the last couple of years where his decision-making kind of regressed. He leads the league in red zone interceptions, and he does a lot of things that are great, but no quarterback has ever won a championship by turning the ball over. And Josh Allen is the best quarterback in the NFL at turning the ball over. And that is a significant problem that he has to address and the Bills have to address because nobody has ever won a Super Bowl because they turned the ball over. So Josh Allen's got to do a better job. Yeah, if only Whitehead had a white helmet on Monday night, things would have been a little bit differently for uh, for Josh Allen. Luckily, the Bills, though, have a bounce-back game next week, which should be a bounce-back game when they play the Raiders. Um Probably the worst team in the league, the Raiders. I, I don't think many people would argue that. If eh, they beat the one Broncos of- last week. Yeah, they did. It's also the Broncos, though. I, I still think the Raiders are probably one of the worst teams in the league. They, they're, I think that it's going to show once the season kind of progresses on here. My only other thing I have to really say, Brees Hall, great game, 127 yards, 10 carries, with an 83-yard rush. Um, and the, the other thing I saw here, this is the only third time that a, a game ended in overtime in the NFL on a kick return. So that was pretty cool too. That's something else I pretty I, I saw. Uh Xavier Xavier uh Gibson, excuse yep. me, punt return. Like I said, only third time in NFL history that happened. And AFC East, despite Rogers going out, it's gonna be the uh it's gonna be the division to watch this year. Dolphins, hottest offense they showed that Sunday. Patriots, Mac Jones, they they held up against the Super Bowl uh, you know, Eagles. Uh, you know, that went to the Super Bowl last year. Jets, like we all said, they have a roster that can compete with anyone. Just the quarterback is the only position that really has the, you know, diminishing factor there. And Bills, despite terrible play, it's still Josh Allen and it's still a Bills team that many people think also have potential to go to the Super Bowl. So, the, the, besides, the, despite Aaron Rodgers, you know, being out here, I still think the AFC, uh, this, this, this division is the, the AFC East is still the division to watch this year going forward. What, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Oh, I don't think there's. I think so. Yeah, Uh, Mm -hmm. I think my 
Oh, sorry. You can go, Zach. Oh, I was going to say, I don't think there's any doubt about it. When you look at this division, the Dolphins, I think, are probably the biggest winner of week one because now Aaron Rodgers is out for the year. The Jets are compromised significantly, and the Bills lost. The Patriots lost. I think the Patriots are going to be the quintessential tough out. They may be a last-place team in that division that wins eight games because they're pretty good. I mean, Mac Jones outplayed Jalen Hurts the other day. You look at the Bills, they're going to be fine. Uh, the Jets, who knows what they're going to be. And then the Dolphins, of course, everything's – revolving around whether Tua stays healthy. And then the back half of their defense, Jalen Ramsey, can he get healthy toward the second half of the season? So it's the most interesting division in the league, for sure. I think you're getting at least three Mm -hmm. playoff teams out of that division. I don't think you're getting all three of them as wild cards, but I think two of the wild cards in the AFC will come out of that division. I think it has the potential to have two wild cards and obviously the division winner. But I think this is Miami's division to lose if – Tua can stay healthy. I think they're the best team in the division right now, especially at quarterback. I, I would say Josh Allen would be the would be the second best yet, but I still think that yeah, uh, very likely mo- uh, both wild or uh, the, the wild card spots. Excuse me, all three wild card spots are going to come from the AFC North and the AFC East. The very very clear possibility that might happen. Uh, let's move on to Thursday night football, guys. Uh, Vikings, Eagles tonight, prime video. We have prime time, Kirk. That's always a problem. Very Vikings could very well go 0-2 uh, when they come to Philadelphia tonight. Uh, line currently, minus 6.5 for the Eagles. Are you guys surprised by this line? I mean, despite Vikings losing last week, kind of a must-win game for them to get, you know, to right the ship, for lack of better words, pardon the pun. Do you guys think that the, uh, this is kind of a, a rough uh, line for the Vikings, or do you think it should be a little bit more tight? No, I think it's about right. I think the Eagles at home, they're the better team. They didn't play all that well by their standards in week one, and you mentioned it, primetime Cousins. Kirk has just been terrible in primetime, especially last year. Remember, they lost 24-7 to in a game that really wasn't all that competitive against the Eagles in week two. They lost to Tampa, <clears throat> to Tampa on Sunday, and it was not pretty by any means. Baker Mayfield lit him up. I think Jalen Hurts is going to do the same. I think they're going to be able to run the ball down the Vikings' throats. Minnesota really struggled to stop the run against Tampa, which that's not a great rushing team. I mean, Rashad White ain't exactly uh, ain't exactly Kenneth Gainwell or you know any of the DeAndre Swift or any of those great Eagles running backs. So I, I think Philly's going to win this game, and I actually think they just might blow them out. I think Jalen Hurts has a big bounce back, and I think off a short week at home. I typically favor the home team when it comes to a Thursday night game when you've only got four days to get ready, and the Eagles are the better team. So I think Philly wins. I think they cover. I think it's relatively easy. Yeah, prime time, Kirk Cousins on prime video. Justin, any uh, any last-minute thoughts on this game before we move on? I think this is – yeah, I think this is a must-win for the Vikings, but I do think that Philadelphia comes away with the win at home with, uh, with their home opener as well. Kirk Cousins – not a primetime quarterback, does not do well in primetime games. But I think the Eagles will win this game. I don't know about a blowout, but the problem with the Eagles is is the tight ends. They can't cover the tight ends. That's what happened at New England with Hunter Henry and Mike Gusecki getting a, getting a good game on that Eagles defense. Hawkinson is a much better tight end. I think there's there's some concern about the Eagles defense, but I think that they should be able to win this game at home. Probably 31-24, maybe even 31-20, to 20, 
somewhere in there. I think it's okay. A win. You're taking the over then. Forty-eight and a half. Taking the over then, Justin. All right. Football, uh, college football. Week three is here, guys. Uh, not the best lineup of games this week. Not nothing compared to really last week and even week one. I want to get your. Uh, what do you guys think the closest game here is going to be this week? And I think uh, Pitt West Virginia has a potential to be a really close game. Uh, Pitt took it last year, thirty-eight to thirty-one. Uh, WVU is home this time, though, but Pitt is the better team. So even though WVU is favored, I still think Pitt is the better team. Uh, QBs very similar. Garrett Green, Phil Jakovic, uh for Pitt. Uh, I think, uh, and then Jared uh, Garrett Green, like I said, for WVU, very similar quarterbacks. Uh, very similar uh, offensive structure to these teams, and these teams always play each other very, very hard. So this is going to be my closest game of the week. Uh, if you're looking for a uh, for a nail biter, what do you guys think is a has a potential to be a close game this yeah, week? Yeah, that was going to be my closest game because it's a rivalry game, and these are two teams that really haven't started the season all that well. Pitt lost to Cincinnati last week. West Virginia, we all saw what happened against Penn State a couple weeks back. I think this is a desperate game for both these teams. It could be a swing game. Whichever team wins this game. Might go on and win eight games, nine games, and the losing team might go on to uh, have their coach fired or just kind of sink to the depression of the season. But since I can't take that one since you did, I'm going to go with LSU-Mississippi State as the closest game. I really think LSU's favored up by nine and a half on the road. I think that's way too many. I think Will Rogers and a veteran Mississippi State team at home with the Cowbells, I think that's going to be a fascinating game. And LSU has done nothing to make me believe that they should be favored by nine and a half points against a quality opponent. Jaden Daniels has been very inconsistent uh, in his last 10 games or so. LSU, they've lost four of their last 10 games, and three of them they got blown out. So I know there was a lot of optimism around them coming into the season. I didn't really buy into it. So I think that's going to be a close game. I'm definitely taking Mississippi State in the points. I think they've got a chance to pull the upset. I don't know if they will, but I think that's going to be a much closer game than people think. Alabama and South Florida and USF, I think that could be a very close game. They're one and one USF, and Alabama's weaknesses are getting exploited, especially at quarterback and especially on this team. Yeah, that's actually my Alabama USF is actually one of my my most intriguing storyline uh, heading into this weekend. Uh, Alabama, of course, just losing to Texas last week at you know um, at home. Uh, Jalen Milrow on the hot seat uh, for Alabama. This is Alabama's legacy is on the line. Uh, their point spread currently is minus 32. Alabama needs to kill US, USF this weekend. Uh, if they don't, if it's a close game, uh, if it's a closer game than it should be, a lot of people are going to start saying that Alabama's dynasty is over. More people that are even saying that right now. Uh, yeah, so Alabama needs to kill US, USF this weekend in order to you know keep the narrative down and keep Alabama kind of in that uh, conversation as an elite team in college football right now. What, what, about, what about you guys? Any, uh, any intriguing storylines yeah, this week? I, I don't think the Alabama game three? is going to be all that close. I think the most intriguing storyline is who can get who can avoid looking ahead, you know, because we got some big ones next week. Florida State, Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame, UCLA, Utah. This week's not great on paper, but these are typically the kind of weeks that seem to blow up into chaos. I look at the slate, and I don't really see an obvious upset, but I want to see if Tennessee can handle success and if they can handle – being favored on the road at Florida. They haven't won in Gainesville since 2003, and they've only won twice or three times, rather, in the series since 2004. So it's kind of uncharted waters for them. Let's see if they can handle that. Um, Penn State-Illinois, I think, could be interesting because the last time they played was a nine-overtime game that Illinois won. Uh, the Illini have a really good defense. Penn State's kind of the 
the hot team in the Big Ten or a team that's getting a lot of attention? Like, can they challenge Ohio State and Michigan at the top of that conference? So I think that's an interesting game. I think the biggest thing this week, though, is just who can avoid looking ahead to next week? Because this week's slate isn't necessarily great on paper, but next week has uh, – it's dynamite. I mean, you talk about some of the big games next week, but who can avoid looking ahead? Because these are 18 to 22-year-olds, and if we're already thinking about it, then there's a good chance that they're thinking about it. Justin? Yeah, Tennessee and Florida as well. Joe Milton definitely looking – trying to prove – he is ready for prime time on the road at Florida. Uh, Tennessee hasn't won there in 20 years now. But, yeah, Tennessee and Florida, also my intriguing storyline of the week. Any uh, any upset alerts um, from you guys? I don't know about significant upsets, but three? I like Purdue my plus two and a half over Syracuse. Syracuse leads the ACC in scoring offense and scoring defense, but they haven't played anybody. Purdue should be undefeated, and you watch the way that they played last year. It was 32-29. Syracuse scored a last-second touchdown. We know how difficult it is to win on the road at night in West Lafayette. So I think Ryan Walters and the Boilermakers get it done at home. So I'll take them as a slight underdog. It's kind of tough pickings if you're going the underdog route this week because I, I frankly don't see a whole lot of upsets on the slate. So I'll take Purdue as my my upset. Yeah, I'm going to go – I don't know if this is a significant upset, but I'm going to go NIU over Nebraska. Nebraska has played terrible the last two weeks. I mean, obviously Colorado is a great team they lost to, and uh, I think the other team they lost to was Minnesota as well. They're both two, two pretty good teams. Nebraska, um, only positive for Nebraska is their defensive effort, effort, but Jeff Sims is not the answer, though, uh, at quarterback. 20 for 34 in those two games with only, with only 220 yards of passing, one TD and four picks and two fumbles. Uh, Matt Roll uh, didn't get it done at Temple. Uh, two and 10 when he was at Temple in 2013. 1-11 at Baylor at 2017. NIU already proved they're capable of an upset this season. They had an, o- an overtime victory against Boston College in week one. Boston College, not the best team, but also not the worst team in the league either. And I think, uh, yeah, like I said, Nebraska... Should have been should have been way better than they are this year so far after week two, and I think uh, NIU actually has a potential to come in and actually make some noise against Nebraska as well and uh, make Nebraska zero and three after week three. What about you, Justin? Any uh, any uh, major upsets you want to look out for this week? I would look for Missouri against Kansas State as a potential upset. Kansas State will be on the road, ranked number fifteenth. They're two and zero. Missouri also two and zero, but they're going to have home field advantage. So. That could be a potential upset in that game. How about any shootouts this week? High-scoring games or just anything that's exciting in general? I have Houston, TCU. Uh, this is Houston's first Big 12 game. A lot of the, lot to prove. Both teams are very, very bad defensively, but explosive on offense. The over-under is 63.5. I'm definitely hammering the over in this game. TCU went undefeated last season and went to the college football playoffs, as we all know. Houston barely beat UTSA in week one and fell to Rice in double overtime in week two. Like I said, this is their first Big 12 game. Bad defense for both teams, but Houston definitely has a lot to prove going into this uh, going into this week. Like I said, just you know, being, you know, being their first conference game. Uh, and TCU desperately needs to stop this bleeding that they've had at the beginning of the season. Uh, what about you guys? Any, any uh, good shootouts this week that you're looking out for? I think that's an underrated game. 
game at the over under 55 and a half. And you look at Washington the last couple weeks, Michael Penix has already thrown for over 400 yards in both games this season. I think he has another big game. You look at Michigan State's offense, it took a while to get going in their opener, but last week they were hitting on all cylinders. I think Noah Kim in that uh, passing game is going to contribute to a lot of points. And they're playing without Mel Tucker. I think they're going to have something to prove in this game. I think it's a high scoring game. I think Washington's going to win. And I don't know if it's going to be all that close. But I would definitely hammer the over-under 55-and-a-half. Washington might score 40 points themselves. They're one of the most explosive offenses in the country. So I'm looking at Washington-Michigan State as my shootout of the week. Justin, any shootouts this week? I think that could be the shootout is Washington at Michigan State. Both 2-0 and teams as well. Let's go on the opposite side of the spectrum here. Uh, snoozer of the week. Who do, who do you guys have uh, as a game that we should keep off playing. our TVs oh, wait, no, this weekend? Oh, oh, it's South Carolina, so eh, maybe interesting. Utah, Weber State, not necessarily all that great either. I mean, once you start playing FCS teams, you, you don't really need to watch that. Uh, but I'll give you the obvious answer. I'll give you the snoozer. Anytime Iowa plays anybody that isn't a Power 5 team, and they're playing Western Michigan, they're favored by 28.5. Iowa shouldn't be favored by 28.5 against Air because I don't know if they could score 28 points if you didn't put a defense on the field. So I'll go with Iowa. That's typically the snoozer game. They always win these low-scoring 20-3 to kind of games. If you ever need to take a nap, turn on Iowa football. It's a cure for insomnia. This is Carson. You, you mentioned Georgia. Uh, this is Carson Beck's uh, first SEC game. So we'll see how he does in that game. That's that's just kind of an intriguing storyline to look out for. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Texas and Wyoming. Texas, explosive game last weekend. We know against Alabama. They're favored by 29 and a half against Wyoming. This should be a breeze for Texas. It's going to be a, an absolute blowout. Uh, Texas should absolutely dominate Wyoming. And I don't even think I'll tune into this game uh, for one second because it's just going to be such a such a blowout. Uh, Justin, how about you? What do, any snoozer this week that you got that you have on your radar? LIU and Baylor both low with two teams. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's yes. terrible. Baylor, another surprising. T- I mean, they're not they're not as good as they used to be in the you know even four or five mm-hmm. years ago. But that's that's another team that should definitely not be zero uh, and two like just like Nebraska. That's a that's a surprise. Um, last thing I want to talk about is the NBA, uh, NBA yesterday came out, uh, Adam Silver came out with a press conference and the NBA front office is going to start cracking down on NBA stars, uh, resting, uh, uh, you know, load management, as they say, uh, next season fines are pretty, um, pretty substantial. Uh, so the first fine, the first time offense would be a hundred thousand dollar fine. Uh, the second time offense would be a $250,000 fine. And then any uh, any time after the second time, so any subsequent, subsequent time, excuse me, uh, would be a $1 million fine on top of that. What do you guys think of this? I know this has been a problem in the NBA for a long time. Stars, uh, load management, taking nights off. A lot of people come out to see these stars play. And then when they get there, they're not even laced up and ready to go. It's something that, like I said, the NBA has been trying to fix for a long time. But does this seem like too much of a punishment for you guys? Or do you think it's uh, this, this is what they need to do to stop this from happening? I think they need to do this to stop that from happening. I think that's why the NBA has lost significance and revenants because of the load management, especially with these star players. 
I think you could get away with it against not a great team, against probably one of the worst teams in the NBA if you have multiple star players. But if you don't, I mean, you gotta. The NBA should prioritize matchups like the NFL prioritizes quarterback matchups and rivalries and much, much better games. That's what the NBA should should have really done. But I think this is a good step in the right direction by the NBA, trying finding these finding these teams that resting that are resting the star players. I think, this have is necessary. Two I, mean, I think it's the right thing. If you're do. telling the average NBA fan to get into the regular season, it's kind of hard when the players aren't really into the regular season. So if they don't care, why should we care? So I think this is the right move by the NBA. And you're, you're still salvaging. Like if you're a team with multiple stars, then you're still going to get like, I don't know, you're a Laker fan per se. And Either LeBron or Anthony Davis is going to sit out, but both of them are not going to sit out. I think that's a win for the fans. I think this is a move that needed to happen. The The regular season has lost a ton of relevance because, as we mentioned, like you don't know who's playing every night. That's a problem. How are you going to buy tickets for kids? How are you going to be a fan? and You're interested in this game or that game, and you don't know who's playing in that game. So I think this is a smart move, and I like the fact that they are required to play 65 out of 82 games to be up for individual awards, which still means you can miss 17 games, which, I mean, we'd all like to have 17 days off of work, wouldn't we? So I I don't really – I I think this is the the right move for the NBA. I don't think there's any doubt that they needed to do something because the regular season interest just was not there. I think this is a better move than the in-season tournament is, which I think is a total gimmick. I think this is what needs to happen for the NBA regular season to have more relevance. Yeah, the league defines star players as those that have achieved all-star status or all-NBA all honors in the previous three seasons. Uh, Adam Silver then went on to list 15 teams that uh, he defined as having multiple stars on the team. So almost half the teams uh, in the league, Adam Silver defines as having multiple stars on the league. Another big part of this rolling is that uh, if a player does actually even sit out, even for injury, that player actually still must be rested on the sideline and in the arena visible to fans. Uh, but my only other point about this too is there is some, there definitely is some gray area in this rolling. I mean, um, it's the team doctor gets to make the call whether a player is healthy enough to play or whether or not he needs to be sitting out. Uh, you could see a lot of teams. You know, I can already see in the future a lot of teams trying to take advantage of this, um, you know, having doctors roll out players when they really are not that injured. Um, my last point, though, uh, NBA will have the opportunity to investigate any incidents that they seem fit. So, example, like if a star player sits out and then two days later he's, he's playing, you know, if he sits out for injury, and then two days later he's playing. The NBA uh, does have the ability to investigate the incidents and they and they said that they will investigate further so yeah this is more to come uh players probably aren't as happy with this rolling uh you know especially you know the the most uh frequent offenders like Kawhi leonard always comes to mind but yeah we'll see what happens i for one am happy that that they're doing this i'm i'm tired of seeing um players sit out but um yeah we'll see what happens and this is a this is a good step forward for the nba Complaintives of the week, guys. Let's start with the complaintives of the week. Yeah, I was going to say, we've only had a couple of days since the last complaintive. Um, let's see here. Yeah, okay. So here's my complaintive of the week. Stop giving Deion Sanders motivation. Colorado State's head coach, Jay Norvell, 
came out and said, you know what? I sat down with ESPN today. I took my hat off. I took my glasses off. And when I talk to grownups, I take my hat and my glasses off. That's what my mother told me or taught me to do. Stop giving Dion motivation. We saw this last week against Nebraska where they uh, Matt Rule stood on the buff before the game and was talking about, oh, it's not about the, me. It's about the kids and all that kind of stuff. Like, when you give Deion Sanders motivation, it typically does not go well for you. We saw them beat Nebraska by 22 a week ago. Colorado State's a significant underdog this week, and they've already got game day. They've got big new kickoff. They've got 60 minutes all in town. This is setting up to be a beatdown for Colorado. So I, I don't know why you're giving Deion Sanders extra motivation to beat you, and he doesn't need that motivation. They were 1-11 last year. They're 2-0 already. They don't need more reasons to beat you than just, you know, let's go out and win the game. And teams continue to give him bulletin board material. I don't get it. Yeah, my complaint of the week is why the NFL still uses artificial turf. I know it's more expensive, but the injuries that, that their NFL is receiving actually might end up losing the mo- losing more money for the league in the long term. NFL has to put in real grass in all the stadiums. Six consecutive years, injury rates on synthetic surfaces were far higher than natural surfaces. Uh, Players are getting injured on artificial turf. Players hate artificial turf. Executive Director Lloyd Howell uh, for the uh, NFLPA came out saying that, you know, players overwhelmingly prefer to play on real grass. They hate the artificial turf. They've hated it for a long, long time. Um, Yeah, there's there's a thing that the NFL does to test the field. It's called the Clegg Test. Uh, it's based uh, CL, C-L-E-G-G. It's basically a test that just measures the field's hardness. Turf often or usually does fail the clay test. It's, it's compared to being the feeling of concrete at times. Uh, the league acknowledges this. The league acknowledges that the, the field does fail this clay test, but they still do nothing about it. Players are getting injured. No one likes it. NFL needs to take away the artificial turf and put in real grass uh, once and for all. Justin, who is your complaintive of the week? My complaint about the week is overreactions with week one of the NFL season. You can overreact in week six, overreact in week 10, but week one is is a little too soon. It's a little too far-fetched. I think teams could come out of the woodwork and teams could, you know, fall back. Whatever whatever happens, happens. That's why the NFL is so great. But, But overreactions in week one, let's pump the brakes a little bit. All right, guys, we're going to move on to our interview now with Valerie Preoctor, a sports journalist and reporter for WBAL Baltimore. Fantastic interview with her. Go over all things with the Ravens, uh, what they did in the offseason this upcoming year, the DK Dobbins injury, Lamar Jackson, and then a great talk with the Orioles as well, just the season they've had, and then especially as we head into October here. So, yeah, we're not uh, without... Uh, any more time let's bring on Valerie and uh, talk some Baltimore sports okay we now head to Baltimore and talk to Valerie Preakter from WBAL in Baltimore uh, Valerie Orioles doing well for the first time in probably seven seven years uh, Ravens a lot of people think might go to the Super Bowl this year some people are saying that some people might even say Lamar Jackson might have a comeback year for MVP this year I want to start with the Ravens, though, and then we'll get to the Orioles a little bit later. Um, how sad is the fan base for J.K. Dobbins right now? I mean, preseason had a ruptured or injured his ACL. I don't know if you say ruptured for ACL, but injured ACL. 
uh, out the whole 2021 season and then missed eight games last year as well. First game of the season this year, torn Achilles. How frustrated and sad do the fans really feel for J.K. Dobbins never really being able to kind of show his potential for the Ravens? Yeah, maybe frustrated is is the better word there because he's just been living through a nightmare of the past two years for him, not really been able to have a, a full season, like you said, there for just such a long time. And obviously he expects so much out of himself and was really excited for 2023 to be able to prove himself after the torn ACL. And he basically ripped up everything in that leg, including the hamstring. So it was such a long road to recovery for him. And now finally feeling 100% and then tearing the the Achilles in week one against the Houston Texans. Totally not what you want to happen to your top running back. But look, he didn't get the deal done. He's still on his rookie contract. So by the time he's finished and totally recovered from this injury now, I don't know where J.K. Dobbins is going to end up. So I do think that uh, frustrated is definitely the right word because you don't want to see that happen to your top back. But also... At the same time, there's so much depth in that running back room for the Ravens. You've got Gus Edwards, who's still going to be a beast. You've got Justice Hill, who was actually making more than J.K. Dobbins anyway, and he really stepped up in week one, was able to get two touchdowns. And then you've got the veteran, Melvin Gordon, who decided to stay on the practice squad, and that turned out to be such a great uh, idea uh, of him because now he's going to be the one that's going to be able to step up. And they took a chance on the undrafted rookie free agent, Keaton Mitchell, who just was a beast in preseason. So they're still pretty stacked without J.K. Dobbins, but it definitely is sad. And I know that a lot of the players were just really emotional post-game. Talking about it, Patrick Queen had tears in his eyes. I had to break the news to Justin Matabike on the defensive side, and he was really torn up about it. And these guys feel for him, no doubt. So the city does as well, and they want to see him get back and get better than ever. But it's just – it sucks that it's – game one and he's down for the so year. one of the big reasons for optimism with the Ravens is not just that great running game it's that they added you know Zay Flowers it's that they got Odell Beckham so the passing game it was good not I wouldn't say great in the first game maybe a little out of sync with Todd Munkin how confident are they that they're going to get that together how much confidence do they have in Zay Flowers had a pretty good game for a rookie guy and Odell Beckham of course coming off multiple injuries you figure he's going to factor into the offense at some point so what's the confidence in the passing game with Lamar right now there's a hundred percent confidence. I feel like that's almost wary to say that, but we haven't been able to say that in the past with the potential running backs or sorry, excuse me, potential wide receivers that were in Baltimore. Uh, you were really dealing with Rashad Bateman and Devin DuVernay as your number one, number two. And that was pretty much it last year. And they both left with foot injuries in 2022. So going into this season, having four top wide receivers in Ilda Beckham Jr., Nelson Aguilar, who we didn't even see much of week one, so there's still kind of a, a guy back there that you can throw to. And then, of course, you've got uh, Zay Flowers, Rashad Bateman, and Devin DuVernay. It's just too stacked, honestly. And I remember general manager Eric DaCosta saying this was the first time, I think, ever that they'd had other teams reach out to them about making trades with their wide receiver room, and they're not giving up anybody. So I think for Lamar Jackson to finally have a almost plethora amount of guys to throw to because you can't forget about Mark Andrews even though he's not in that receiving core didn't play week one who will be back at some point in the season and that's you know the security blanket for Lamar Jackson that's the go-to guy so you've got him and the rest of the tight ends and Isaiah likely that are just big body receivers that Lamar loves to go to so I think a lot of confidence in this wide receiver core and, and just pass catchers in general because of course bring in Todd Munkin and he brings that new aerial attack that Lamar Jackson really hasn't had 
a lot to, to work with. So I think going forward, I know we saw him run a lot on Sunday. I think as 2023 progresses, we're definitely going to see a lot more from his arm. Did people want to see more of Odell Beckham Jr. on Sunday? Did the fans want to see more out of him? Two receptions, I think, what, 37 yards I think he had Sunday? Were fans wanting to see more of him? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, 29 yards, that was the longest catch that really over the shoulder surprised people a lot. But even on the first reception, like you said, they're probably only like seven or eight yards. That got a standing ovation in M&T Bank Stadium, and it was totally like erupted a loud atmosphere there at the bank so just for him to get his first catch in over 570 days since tearing his ACL when the Rams won the Super Bowl back in 2022 it was just unlike anything I've ever seen so I think they definitely want to see more from Oda Beckham Jr and they will he is so hungry he described this past win as an undercooked appetizer for this team which I think is the best way to put it because, yes, it was a win against the Houston Texans against a rookie quarterback, but there is so much more that we haven't even seen from this offense yet, and, and they're ready to unveil it just a little bite at a time. So not only J.K. Dobbins got hurt, but Ronnie Stanley got a knee injury. Tyron Linderbaum hurt his ankle. Like This seems to be the story of the Ravens the last three years is they're the most injured team in the league. <clears throat> is there like a specific thing as far as their snake bit? Is it you know the training staff? Is there – questions about that why does this team seem excuse me why does this team seem to have a whole lot of injuries year in and year out yeah I don't know snake bit is is definitely a word that I've used heard a lot I would say that maybe about certain players I don't know if the team is overall because there are guys that have been able to stay healthy uh Lamar Jackson not one of them but you mentioned Ronnie Stanley there who also sat out previously with an ankle injury for about a year was able to get back last year finally and then I don't know if he ever really felt like 110%. I don't know. He definitely played well toward the end of that season, but definitely nothing like his 2019 season where he just balled out. And um, But, yeah, so Ronnie Stanley and Tyler Linderbaum to both be out on the offensive line, definitely not what you want to see. Luckily, they do have the unicorn offensive lineman and Patrick McCary who went in on the left tackle side. But then you have Sam Mustafer who came in at center who – Played for the Bears. He's a fine center. I think they'll do well with him. But that offensive line didn't look fantastic this week. I mean, Lamar Jackson felt like he was running for his life sometimes. A lot of scrambles from him, which you don't want to see. So I think those two are honestly way more concerning than Gus Edwards. Or, uh, sorry, than uh, J.K. Dobbins. Because you have the depth in the running back room, like I mentioned before. But the offensive line is something that you need constantly. And there isn't a lot of depth there on guys. We saw with the left guard position, was it going to be the rookie Sala or was it going to be John Simpson? They ended up going with the veteran Simpson. So you really don't have a lot of experience on that offensive line. Tyler Linderbaum only going into his second year. So you hope that those aren't as long-term injuries for those guys. But yeah, snake bit, that's so interesting because it's a, it's a tough word, but they've dealt with this. It's always that next minute mentality. I feel like we've been talking about that for three years now. So you're right. It is something that we've just become accustomed to, but that's definitely not something that should be as normal as it is. How is this going to affect the Ravens offense generally throughout the year? These losses, these injuries. The injuries for sure. And and we didn't even mention Marcus Williams the on, on the safety side of things in the secondary, which that was such a beleaguered position two years ago when they dealt with this in 2021 all of the injuries were a lot of them to the secondary. And right now you're without Marlon Humphrey, though there's already, okay, who's who's your next guy up? Who's that backup guy? 
you're working with a second year uh, safety and, and Kyle Hamilton, who is definitely more confident this season, but I don't know. I think <clears throat> how do the Ravens move forward? That's always the next question. Who's that next man up? They have a lot of guys in the practice squad who are really key and made some awesome plays during the preseason. So they do pick guys really well. Uh, but I think for, for John Harbaugh, it's definitely frustrating because again, you're working with not only your starters, but also guys that are just coming in or you trade for guys mid season and, and they, they come in. We saw that last year with Jason Pierre Paul kind of joined this squad. And that's what we've really seen from, from Jadavian Clowney, who was able to go in on the outside and kind of coach these younger guys of David Ajabo and Adafe Owe and, you need all those veteran guys. And if those are the ones that are getting injured, that doesn't help you at all. So I think for, for the Ravens, it really is kind of trusting what you have and, and who's been here the longest and hope pray that they don't get injured. But of course it's never good to deal with multiple injuries after week one. It's a win, but it was definitely a costly win. Yeah. Kind of like the chargers of the East coast almost with the injuries, such a talented team, but always getting kind of shot in the foot by all the you know hurt players that they have on the sidelines. I want to go back to Todd Munkin, uh, specifically the uh, wide receivers. First time it seems like in a long time, um, Ravens actually have a good wide receiver core, um, like we were kind of talking about earlier in the interview. Are the fans confident in Todd Munkin to be able to really utilize that wide receiver core? Or Because he's, he's had a weird career. I mean, he, career. He obviously won the national championship last year with Georgia. He's been kind of bounced between NFL and college, though. I mean, started at Jacksonville Jaguars, then with the Southern Miss, Buccaneers, and the Browns. Like I said, Georgia last year. Now he's back in the NFL. What do the fans feel about him? Are they pretty confident in Munkin's ability to, to get this offense kind of on track? I mean, it's been one of the lower offenses and, you know, one of the least productive offenses over the last couple of years. And um, just what are their thoughts on Munkin coming in here? Yeah, no doubt. I think when the Ravens picked him up in the offseason back in February. I think if you looked at all the guys that they brought in, Todd Munkin was the most exciting, and you think he's going to change this entire offense, which which was exactly what they were calling for because last year all the fans were like, please fire Greg Roman. They wanted to get rid of him so fast. I mean, they I honestly think they were upset that he, he didn't leave sooner because of how just different they, they were looking last year because they had such a great year in 2019 with – Lamar Jackson going in the MVP unanimously. And then they just saw so many rushing yards that year. And then after that, it obviously the injuries happen and nothing really comes with that. That's good news. But, but for Todd Munkin, I think there was a little bit of a different reception this past week. I think we had some calls into the post game show and everyone was like, well, what was that? I mean, I don't know if that offense was for Todd Munkin. What was the deal with there? Because they didn't see a lot of a aerial attack like we were expecting and they didn't see you know, uh, you know, huge, uh, deep passes that we thought we were expecting from Lamar Jackson. It was a lot of rushing from him, a lot of running yards. And, and so I think they're expecting a lot more and a totally different scheme for sure. But like you said, they have a lot of offensive toys now to kind of play with, with all these wide receivers. So I think for, for Todd Munkin, it's almost like you're definitely starting fresh because these are guys that you're bringing into this offense that have never even been in Baltimore before with Zay Flowers. Odo Beckham Jr., Nelson Aguilar, but you also have one of the top quarterbacks to work with. And I think that was one of the reasons that really kind of drove him to Baltimore was like, I'm going to get to work with Lamar Jackson, who, like I said, is an MVP quarterback. And he's just such a different style quarterback that now, all right, you kind of have to throw out the playbook and start over. And so I think that's what all the fans were looking forward to with Todd Munkin. And 
they haven't seen all of it. We only saw 60 minutes so far. Mm -hmm. There's the rest of the whole season to go. There's, you know, 17 more weeks to go in this season. So we're going to see a lot more from Todd Munkin. And I'm really excited because I think he really favors the tight ends. We saw that in Georgia. You have that here in Baltimore with Mark Andrews and Isaiah Likely. So I think we're going to see so much more with that when they're both healthy on the field. So I think the really for Todd Munkin, it's an endless uh, open bag of, of weapons to use. So I think we're going to see that in 2023 unfold. Bit by bit. I know it's early in the season, but week two, they're playing the Bengals in Cincinnati. They lost twice there, of course, the last two games of the Ravens season, week seven or week 18 and the playoff game. Like, does this represent for them an opportunity to go up two games, three games with the head to head? Plus you get a game in Baltimore later in the year. Are they treating this kind of like a statement game or a big opportunity? Or is it too early in the season to be talking about that? I don't know that it's too early. I think anytime you have a divisional game, it always feels like a playoff game, no matter what, because of the implications that it will have later on in the season. And with the Bengals losing to the Browns, they seem to always have their number for some reason. That's a good omen for the Ravens to go into Cincinnati and feel like they have a leg up. I don't know that they're going to really treat it that way. Uh, but I think it, it could be, I don't know, the, the way that the Bengals have started the last two seasons haven't been the best. So maybe that's going to play to the Ravens' advantage. But not only are they playing the Bengals, but the first five, six weeks of the season for the Ravens are so tough. They're playing all three divisional opponents on the road, and then they go to London. So they really can't catch a break in the first six weeks. So that's going to be tough, and it really starts this week and week two. I feel like the Houston Texans game was not really a walk in the park because you can't underestimate any NFL team, but compared to what they have ahead of them, it, it's going to be, uh, I think, looked at in the past as one of the easier games. Going into Cincinnati is never easy. Facing Joe Burrow is never easy, no matter whether he finds the end zone the game before or not, which is what it's looking like uh, going into week two. But I don't know. I think that the uh, the Ravens are going to have a sour taste in their mouth from from last year's playoff game where, you know, Tyler Huntley goes high instead of going low and they don't get the touchdown and they get eliminated from the playoffs. So I think that they're going to go in and kind of want revenge from that. And now that they have Lamar Jackson back, it's going to be even better. So I think they're really – they're taking it to heart and, and they are going to want to go in there and just kind of punch them in the mouth because they haven't been able to do that in a really long time. Last time Ravens won AFC North, 2019, they lost in the divisional round that year. Uh, we all saw – I mean, Cincinnati and both Steelers pretty much – I mean, they got, they got manhandled this weekend. Is this the year that the Ravens win the division again? Are we pretty confident about that in Baltimore? Not at all. Uh, I think it's honestly a harder division than ever to kind of rate because last year was kind of a wash with the Browns. You knew Deshaun Watson was going to sit out for 13 games. Didn't know what Kenny Pickett was going to look like as a rookie quarterback. And then, of course, really it was just kind of the Joe Burrow versus Lamar Jackson. And then Lamar Jackson goes down. So that's really it for the AFC North. But now – You've seen what Deshaun Watson can do against Joe Burrow. I know it was week one, but that was a lot. And he is that highest paid really quarterback, uh, no matter what, with that deal. And and so, of course, Joe Burrow signing that $275 million didn't show a lot in week one. Doesn't mean it's really not going to mean anything by the end of the season. Uh, but then Kenny Pickett, again, he had a great preseason, didn't have a great week one. You can't judge the entire season on one game. So I think that for this AFC North, it's only going to get – more and more competitive as as the season goes on and so I know that we play in Pittsburgh at the beginning of the season and then they are the Ravens final game uh in week 18 so that is going to be a, a big play but again you can't underestimate any NFL team 
I mean, look what we saw last night with the Jets. So it, it, it's literally anything goes in the NFL. Does anybody, does, do all the teams split in this division? Do the Ravens, Bengals, Steelers, and Browns all go 3-3 three and three against each other in the division this year? Do they? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think it's tough. Last year, what we've seen with, with the Bengals, it's, I don't think so. I, I feel like it's just, it's such a tough division, and it's interesting. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it in there. I think with Baltimore sports, both of the divisions that the Orioles and the Ravens are in are the toughest divisions in the entire league, both of them. In the AFC North, that's one of the tougher divisions, and in the AL East for the Orioles. It's the toughest division in the MLB. So it's there's no easy games, and it, it really is. I feel like you kind of have to leave it up to chance. Depends on the weather. Depends where they are. If you've got home field advantage, maybe it's a little bit better. Um, but, but we've seen the Ravens lose at home to the Steelers so many times. So uh, it depends. But I, I don't know that it's any easy game to, to go on the road in the first six weeks, no doubt and play all three divisions, uh, divisional opponents on the road. On the road, that's never easy. Never easy. Yeah, like you said, still too early to tell. Um, what's not too early, though, is MLB season. Uh, I think less than a month to go. I mean, definitely less than a month to go at this point in the season. Baltimore up three games against the Rays right now uh, in the AL East. Haven't been to the playoffs since 2016. Um Kind of take me through the fan base. Uh, how excited are we for the Orioles? I mean, they're probably one of the most fun teams to watch this year, both beginning of the year, middle of the year, and even now as we head into the playoffs. Take me through the fans. I mean, how excited are they? I mean, got Ravens coming back. We just talked about them, obviously. Have a lot of potential for them this year. Orioles, most likely. I mean, they are going to make the playoffs. I can't imagine. They are, they are going to make the playoffs. Take, take me through just the excitement uh, heading into October here for baseball. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, I feel like people are finally on the bandwagon now in Baltimore after so many down years of seeing just empty seats at Camden Yards and we're finally getting to sell out games midseason that it's not, you know, opening day or it's not a huge giveaway game. Uh, we're going to see that later this week when, when Tampa Bay comes to town because that's probably going to be the biggest four-game series of this entire season for, for the Orioles, and it's at home. Adam Jones is coming back, which is just so incredible. So he's going to retire as an Oriole on Friday. Already got a sold-out crowd that day. And and I think people are finally understanding how exciting, like you said, this team is to watch all season long. There has not been more than a week where they have they have had you know losing games. They haven't been on a super long losing streak. Knock on wood, that hasn't happened yet. They've gone on winning streaks for seven or eight games. I, maybe even they reached 10 this year. But it's been such a long season. I was talking to Kyle Gibson yesterday. Like, we're already six months into this. I mean, that's how how fast I feel like it's flown by. And it hasn't felt like that. Because when you're winning, everything is good. So for the Orioles to finally be back in first place, like you said, for the first time since 2016 after the All-Star break, I mean, I, I haven't seen a team like this in so long. And the fact is, it's even more incredible because it's all young guys. You're talking about Adley Rutschman, Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg, and, and Kyle Bradish, who Grayson Rodriguez even. I mean, these are the young guys. They haven't played in the MLB for more than two, three years. I mean, a lot of them making their rookie rookie seasons last year, this year for Gunnar Henderson. Um, but so I think for them to feel so mature and to be winning the way that they are and, and facing tough opponents like the Tampa Bay Rays and, and just moving into that first spot, I mean, I don't know how long we were going to hold on to that. But the Orioles have been there since the All-Star break, and, and that was in July. So they've been holding strong to that first-place spot, which I don't think anybody expected. And I know that 
having John Means return tonight as the starter is going to be just a huge boost to that starting rotation. And and I think the fans are just so excited to see him back on the mound for the first time since 2022. So post Tommy John surgery and and man with with Felix Bautista going down uh, with the UCL partial UCL tear, that's that's gut wrenching for sure. And and you could feel that in the fan base. I mean, everyone got got super worried about that, but they haven't been able to they haven't been able to really like not win. So they've been able to pick up the slack while, while he's been, been out and it doesn't sound like his season is over yet, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been super exciting to see all the new guys and everybody that they brought into this clubhouse. Just keep winning. So with this team, not having a ton of experience as far as postseason experience, a lot of young guys, is there the concern that the moments is going to be too big for them once they reach the playoffs or is it because they play in the division they're in? playing against the Rays, the Red Sox, the Yankees, that nothing is going to be too big for them once they reach the playoffs because they've dealt with it all year. That's the greatest point, honestly. I think that's really it. They have faced such tough teams. And like I said, this is the toughest division in the MLB, the AL East. It's a beast. I call it all the time. Uh, Because they've been playing those games all season long, you're right. I don't think the moment's too big for them. And with these young guys, we've seen so much patience from them, so much maturity not only in the clubhouse, on and off the field, but at the plate. I mean, these guys are just, they're walking every game. Adley Rutschman leading the Orioles in walks. He's up there in the top five for, for total walks in, in the American League at least. I mean, there's there's something going on in, in that talent pool for sure. I've talked to the player development guys in the Orioles, and I was like, is this just raw talent that you guys have been dealing with? Because I don't know how much of this is coachable. I mean, they're just this good. Gunnar Henderson, like 24 home runs this season. Adley Rutschman is ridiculous behind the plate as a catcher. I mean, this is just stuff that you don't see every day, not to mention on the same team, all working at the same time. I feel like they're constantly hitting on all cylinder, all cylinders, and, and they're, one, they're having so much fun doing it. And I think that's really the part that's so exciting for the fans is to see how much excitement the guys are having on the field playing each, each and every game that it, it resonates throughout the team and it resonates throughout the stadium and, and throughout the city too. Yeah, they they finished last or second so to last in the division the past guys. six years. Is that years. why this? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say. The Orioles. Yeah. I was going to say, just is it because it's a bunch of young guys? Is it because this team hasn't won in forever? Like, is it just kind of a combination of all those things? Like, this is a franchise in the 70s and 80s. They were one of the premier franchises in baseball, won a bunch of World Series, and we're in the mix every single year. Uh, Peter Angelos, of course, with that whole organization they they seem to have changed almost overnight like because people thought they were cheap for a lot of years and it seems like now they're all in so what what is what has been the biggest difference why has this all of a sudden changed where it's not a gradual like oh this they're building up every couple years like they've kind of come out of nowhere this year I think it feels like that, but honestly, it's just because it's been brewing for so long in the minors. They've got the number one farm system in the league now for two years straight, and that has a lot to do with Mike Elias coming in in 2019, immediately drafting Adley Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson in the same draft class. And then you talk about Grayson Rodriguez, who came in in 2018 uh, as a draft pick, and and those have kind of been churning throughout the minors. So they were killing it all throughout a double A, triple A and and moving up and up. And and we even saw this past year with Jackson Holiday. Like Mike Elias has not missed on any of his draft picks so far. I mean, we saw it throughout the minors. I was able to catch a couple games uh, down in Aberdeen in high A and see some of those guys as they were ascending. And and so I think everyone noticed that they were that good down there, that that has to translate. And we've saw the ascension of 
Jackson Holiday throughout this year, jumping from minor league team to minor league team and just crushing it. I mean, not even being challenged, it seems like. And he's 19 years old. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is Bryce Harper stuff that we're finally seeing in, in Baltimore. So I think for, for Adley Rutschman, it really starts there. And I mean, he had such a great season last year, started out the season this year so good. The Orioles have not been swept in more than 84 game, uh, series. That has a lot to do with Adley Rutschman because it started as soon as he came up on May 22nd in 2022. That that date is like burned into my brain because of how good he's been since then. And uh, and I think he, he has really changed the entire dynamic of this team because you have a lot of guys here who Anthony Santander, Cedric Mullins, um, Austin Hayes, Ryan Mountcastle, who played through the down years, and they're still here. And so I think to have these young guys come in and and not really know what it's like to lose and play that with a chip on their shoulder because of it. So I think that's brought a whole new perspective to to the veterans that are in the in the clubhouse because they're able to finally see like if we all work together, if we all just have fun, the wins will come. And I think that's what we've been able to see in the past two seasons. And so did they come out of nowhere? I think last year nobody expected them to to make the run that they did and it was, you know, they were in that playoff push and I remember watching them go back and forth trying to make that wild card spot and it just wasn't going to happen but but that was really the the taste that they had of of that postseason play of like even though it was still late September like it felt like it was going to be October so I think now they they kind of going into the end of the season like we're not even playing to stop because they're just going to keep going for as long as they can and and nothing really feels like it's too big for them going back to your other question because they face all these teams like the Yankees don't know what happened to them <clears throat> But, uh, but at the beginning of the season, those were some tough games. So, I mean, this this AL East division, you, you can't overlook it. And I think because of just how much fun they're having, it's just set them up for so much greatness in 2023. 18 games left after tonight. Uh, magic number to make the playoffs is five. Um, 18, Like I said, 18 games left. I think the last opponent is actually the Red Sox, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. They they play them in a four-game uh, series to end the, seri- or end the season. Um, so my question for you, for yourself, and even, you know, as a fan of the Orioles and then the fan base in general, has this already been a successful season for the Orioles or do they need to see even more with just the season they have? I mean, they haven't, the last six years, they finished last or second to last in their division. And now they're on, you know, they're, they could even win a hundred games this year. Uh, like I said, so I'll, I'll take it back to you. Is this already a successful season for the Orioles? Yes, already, 100%, because they reached 90 wins. When was the last time they reached 90 wins? I, I don't even think I could tell you. Last year it was 83, and that was remarkable because they finally had a winning season for the first time since probably 2017. So, uh, I mean, the, the numbers of it all have been just ridiculous this year. And so I think for them to reach 90 wins, for them to just have the team that they have been working with finally come together – it has been a successful season, and they owe a lot of that to Mike Elias. They owe a lot of that to Brandon Hyde, the the manager who came in and really changed a lot of things. And, and, and the heart of this team, the guys want to play for him. Not only do they want to play to win, but they're playing for their manager. And, and yeah, I think all in all, it has been a successful season, bringing fans back into the ballpark. Just uh, all in all, it's been such a fun season to watch them play, go on the road and still win. And, I mean, they were – for. A, better part of this year, better on the road than they were even at home. So I think that's been kind of fun. And to see Orioles fans around the country come and support has been awesome. And so, yeah, it's been a successful season. Whether they make it deep into the playoffs or not, 
to me, the way I'm looking at this postseason, they make it to the postseason, period, the end. That's a win. I mean, whether they make it all the way to the World Series, that's a dream. That would be incredible. Um, and I and I don't doubt it. No, no, don't don't even go there with that. I, I don't doubt they're not going to make it. But uh, but I think just going to the postseason, even making it into the divisional round, which I think they're going to end up uh, clinching the East, which I think is, if I'm not mistaken, 17 games to clinch the East. That's the magic number for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really the goal for them to clinch the East, get that first week by, and then. That's it. That's the win. So what's the bigger story in Baltimore right now? Is it the Ravens season starting or is it the Orioles pushing toward the World Series? Because I would think most of the time in two town or three town cities, mostly it's the football team. But what's the bigger story right now? Yeah, it's funny. I think it, it kind of depends on the type of fan that you're asking. There's definitely the, the gung-ho Raven fan that just wants to hear Ravens all the time. And so me talking about that year round never stops. Uh, but I think they're, they're finally – fans that do want to hear more Orioles than Ravens. I mean, throughout the preseason for the Ravens, kind of who cares about a preseason game? And and we were airing those over rate over Orioles games. So everyone was like, what do you mean? The Orioles are winning right now. I mean, they're, they're going on this playoff run. So why are you not playing their games? And, and so I think a lot of people are just excited to see how far the Orioles go. I think they know the Ravens are going to be good no matter what, because of just how competent this team is. And, and again, that all, that all's chalked up to how healthy they can stay. So as long as they don't sustain any more detrimental injuries for the Ravens, I think a lot of people already have faith in them. But the fact that fans have been able to finally get faith back in the Orioles, I think they, they might be leading it just a little bit because my brain's still hooked on, on baseball right now. It doesn't even feel like it's supposed to be football season yet because it's still so warm out. It's still summer to me. So uh, dealing with both is a lot of fun, um, but, uh, but I can't wait to see where this baseball season ends. It's so relevant too. Like I said, I mean, season just started for NFL, MLB, only like 18, you know, less than a month, you know, less than a month away from being over. Orioles have an amazing away record. I mean, 48-26 and their run differential away is also 124, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I didn't, that's, that, that, that's an amazing, what, like what makes them so good away? I mean, they play good at home too. I think their home record, if I have it here, is 43-26. and 26. So roughly the same. If not even better away, which you barely ever see in the MLB. Like, what is it with this team, you know, traveling away from Camden Yards? What makes them play so good on the road? Yeah, that was the question at the beginning of the season toward the middle. It was like, how are they so good when they're not here? And and that's because they've also dealt with having no fans here. So you have to imagine kind of playing in front of a, a crowd. I mean, kind of this year, like the Oakland Athletics was back back in the first few weeks of like maybe having a couple thousand fans there every night, not a lot. Um, and then that was kind of coming off the COVID season where there was nobody there. So they were almost used to hearing nothing. And, and and so I feel like going on the road, that means you're really used to hearing none of your own fans there. So they've kind of had to deal with it th- themselves and, and play through that. And, and I think that helped them for this year, but really I think for the, for the Orioles, they've been able to play some really good come from behind wins. I mean, they have over 40 come from behind wins this season, which is like, so when they get down early, I'm not even worried. Like, I'll go to sleep, and I'm like, yeah, they're going to win. It's not even a question, and I wake up, and they do because that's just how good they play. And and all of a sudden now, this, these past week or so, they've gotten some really high-scoring games in there, 11 last night, 12, 13 the past few few games. I mean, it's just been ridiculous, honestly. In Boston, that crazy game that was 13 to 12, they've given up a lot of runs. Uh, don't get me wrong. That was you know, That's kind of the hardest part, but they were able to hang on to those leads somehow. So – 
I think for them to play so well on the road, again, that's the reason why I feel like they're so mature going into the postseason, like nothing's going to phase them, whether they're at home playing a postseason game or whether they're on the road playing a postseason game. Obviously, it depends whether they're playing the Houston Texans or, or the Texas Rangers. Those are the two tougher teams that they've had series with so far. I think those are the real nightmare. The, the Mariners, too. But I, I think there's a couple tough teams in, in the entire American League that, that give them a tough route. But uh, but either way, I mean, they, they play so well no matter where they are. And, again, no moments too big for them, no stadiums too loud for them. They use it to their advantage, and they still have Do they fun. feel confident in their pitching? Because you just mentioned they score a lot of runs. But we always know that in October, if you're going to win the World Series, you've got to have dominant pitching. Do they feel confident with theirs? I do think they feel confident. I mean, they're, the back end of their bullpen was so strong when you've got Yanir Cano and you had Felix Bautista and you brought in Shintaro Fujinami. I mean, Jacob Webb had done so well, too, coming over from the Angels. I mean, he had nine innings of scoreless work when he first came in. I mean, that was just a ridiculous stretch. And and so I think their pitching, the way that they've been able to develop their pitchers, too, because all those guys I mentioned, like, they came over from other teams and weren't playing well there. And they come to Baltimore and now they're being really successful. So the back end of the bullpen was ridiculous. With Felix Bautista out, they've had to make some changes, but still their middle relievers, that I think for the better part of the season was the hardest part because the starters you saw were going five, six, seven innings, and then those runs were coming into the later innings. So other than I think Kyle Gibson and and, uh, maybe Jack Flaherty, who's come in the middle of the season, have had probably some of the tougher games. But Kyle Gibson's the veteran like innings eater that you just need to have on your team. Along with Cole Irvin, too, he's gone through a tough year, went in from the starting position and then went into the bullpen and it's been kind of back and forth and, and up and down, too. And, and he's realized that. But I think the starters that you have that are so strong are Kyle Bradish, who's a younger guy, Dean Kramer. Those two play so well off each other. Grayson Rodriguez, another one, the rookie this year who came up, didn't do so well in the beginning of the season, went down to AAA, came back and has just been so strong. And, um, and so I think they are really confident in the starting rotation that they have and finally getting John Means back. Look, right now, he, he's pitching well, uh, and it's only going to get better. Look, it's game one for him in the first – I mean, it's been 570 days, so it's 17. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think they're confident in their pitching. I know that throughout that trade deadline, everyone was like, why aren't they spending a lot of money on a, a big-name pitcher? And I think because they don't think they need it, and, and they, they're, they're happy with what they have right now. And – and it's been working so well. You've got 90 wins. You need a better pitcher. I mean, there's a lot of other teams who have better pitchers that don't have 90 wins. Yeah. Well, Valerie, this has been amazing. I love your love your time and just, you know, the good insight with the Ravens and Orioles. Really appreciate it. My last question before going, though, I know in the middle of the season, there were some talks about Shohei Itani coming to Orioles, coming to Baltimore. Uh, best of your knowledge, how, um, how true were those rumors? Was he ever – have like did he ever have a potential to come to Baltimore or was that pretty much just in smoke I don't know it's so tough they're so elusive there in the front office there there isn't much that they're really ready to divulge with us yeah. but I, I I have no doubt that they were they definitely put some interest in I will say I, I've talked to the assistant general manager Sigma Dell and and I feel like they always have a finger on what's going on around the league no matter what they've been able to get so many of those pitchers like I said with 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 Jack Flaherty and Jacob Webb and Shintaro Fujinami and just kind of grab them out of bad spots and, and make them better. So for them, and they picked those, all those guys up off waivers. Talk about Aaron Hicks. I mean, that was a ridiculous grab when Cedric Mullins went down and, and Hicks has been so great. So I think they're able to kind of read 
things from other teams and and pick up on those guys really quick. Like other teams, I don't feel like do that. And so uh, they're always ready to make a move, whether it's a, a costly move or not. Um, I don't know about that. I mean, Jorge Lopez is coming up on my screen. That's another guy who they let go and they picked him back up for nothing. So it's like, wow, that really made a lot of sense, Michael Elias. I guess we do have a lot of faith in you. And I think the fans have, have realized that too. But yeah, with uh, with Shohei Otani, I mean, it's everyone's dream to have him on their team, right? But uh, but I don't know. I, I don't know if they had any, uh, that's all stock or, or whatever. But mm-hmm. I, I do think that they have a, a finger on everything. So they might have yeah. with, with, um, with Shohei. Oh. I don't see him leaving the West Coast. Unfortunately, that'd be nice. I would love right. to see him on the East Coast, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see him leaving the West Coast. Well, Valerie, this has been awesome. Like I said, this we have to do this again sometime. Definitely, we'll have you on again. Uh, talk some Baltimore sports, uh, maybe later in the season. Uh, you know, especially if the Orioles make it, you know, deep run, and then the Ravens, of course, uh, you know, trekking along in the AFC North as well. We'll definitely have you on again. Okay. I'm uh, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Thanks, All right. That- Thanks, Valerie. Do this again sometime. Bye. Thanks, guys. Sounds good. That interview was brought to you by Philly Drinkers. The Continental Sports Podcast has partnered with Philly Drinkers, the go-to place for the greatest sports clothing that you can get your hands on. They specialize in partying hard and looking great while doing it. Owned and operated by diehard sports fans, they don't just love sports, they love what sports stand for. Most importantly, they understand that you always want to rep your favorite team anywhere you go, whether it be a sporting event or grabbing a couple of drinks with the guys. Their apparel and products always have unique designs and slogans, all while bringing out great vibes. Head to phillydrinkers.com today and get your one-of-a-kind merchandise. Philly Drinkers, always party. Okay, let's finish the show with Makers and Fakers of the Week. Justin, who's your Maker of the Week? My Maker of the Week is the Jets' defense, really propelling their way to win on Monday Night Football, even without Aaron Rodgers. They held Buffalo to 16 points, and that defense, as I just mentioned, is not just in the top 10, maybe even top 5 or top 3 as well. That's a Super Bowl defense right there in uh, in New York. My maker of the week is Tua Tagovailoa. Uh, prior to this season, uh, many doubted if Tua would be able to be even the quarterback in the uh, NFL with all the concussions that he had last year. Um, he proved doubters wrong in week one, 366 passing yards, three touchdowns, 110 passer rating, uh, was named the offensive player of the conference, uh, in week one for the, uh, AFC chargers, great defense as well. Khalil Mack, Joey Bosa, uh, JC Jackson didn't matter Tua still came out. He did fantastic balled out. Uh, like I said, had one of the best days of, uh, of week one, like you kind of said, Zach earlier in the show. Um, yeah, only one pick as well, took care of the ball and, uh, was, was the reason the Dolphins won that game in week one against the Chargers. Zach, who's your maker of the week? So my maker of the week is going to be Jordan Love with all the pressure on him with Aaron Rodgers leaving, you know, the Packers have only had three regular quarterbacks in the last 30 years or so. And Jordan Love's next in line. He delivered 15 to 27, 245 yards, three touchdowns, most importantly, no interceptions. And on a day where the Packers didn't really run the ball, we kind of thought if Green Bay was going to win this year, it'd be more based on the running game and the defense. Well, they only rushed for 92 yards on 32 attempts in this game. Jordan Love made the 
the proper decisions. He threw the ball well down the field. He did not look like the moment was too big for him. And as is prerequisite, if you're going to be a Packer quarterback, you have to own the Chicago Bears, which Jordan Love went out and owned the Chicago Bears in this game. They put up 38 points. He looked comfortable. And I think this spelled a lot of questions about, is Jordan Love really the guy? Now, I don't know if he's going to be Brett Favre. I don't know if he's going to be Aaron Rodgers. I do know he's going to be serviceable, and people are giving up on the Packers too easily. I know Aaron Rodgers left, but the roster, the rest of the roster is still really good, and if Jordan Love can continue this kind of play, they're still a threat in the NFC North, so I'm giving it to Jordan Love. All right. Uh, I am going to uh, – yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Justin, who is your faker of the week? My faker of the week is the Buffalo Bills coaching staff, not coaching up Josh Allen – I mean, you look at the risks he's taking. He's he's basically a running back out there besides a quarterback. I mean, that's that's what Andrew what got Andrew Luck out of the league in his early retirement. Could that happen with Josh Allen? That's a big concern if you're the Buffalo Bills and the coaching staff. Josh Allen as well. Also, I would I'll, also the Chicago Bears and Justin Fields, the, the coaching staff there as well. Both not coaching up their quarterbacks in Buffalo and Chicago. Yeah, that was my faker of the week too. Uh, the Bill, uh, the Bears, kind of you know opposite of what you just said, Zach with Maker. Uh, Bears are never going to beat the Packers. Uh, this was their this was their year to beat the Packers. Finally, especially at home, uh, they still can't even get it done with Jordan Love as quarterback for the Packers. Uh, a lot of people thought the Bears would be better than they were last year. Went out, got DJ Moore. Only threw to him twice. Fields only threw to him twice. Fields under pressure the entire time. Their offensive line is terrible for the Bears. Uh, he was running around the entire time. Uh, he's He has to pretty much do it all. Khalil, Khalil Herbert, arguably the best running back for the Bears. Nine rushes, 27 yards. Justin Fields himself also had nine rushes, but he he actually rushed for 59 yards. He's outrushing one of their top uh, running backs uh, on the team. And, uh, yeah, he can't really do it all. Bears need to get things figured out, need to get Justin Fields some help, because I still think Justin Fields can be, uh, you know, a star a star quarterback in the league, as, uh, but he needs he does need help from the front office. Yep. Zach, who is your faker of the week? Can it be anybody other than the Giants? I mean, they lost 40 to nothing. That never happens in the NFL. You don't get beat to that level. And the first two touchdowns, the first quarter of this game, the Cowboys scored two touchdowns, and neither one of them had anything to do with Dak Prescott or Tony Pollard or C.D. Lamb. It was a block field goal return touchdown and a fumble return or a pick, however you want to describe it, for a touchdown. And this game was over from the beginning. It was a rainy night in New York. If you went to this game and you sat through the, all that, you might be entitled to financial compensation because, man, the Giants just laid a flat-out egg in this game, Daniel Jones was awful. Saquon Barkley could get nothing going. And this was about as big of a blowout in a primetime game as you're going to see on Sunday Night Football. And again, you don't want to overreact too much, but the Giants just did not look good at all. You see kind of what's holding them back a little bit. Not a ton of confidence in Daniel Jones. And if they don't have Saquon Barkley having a big game, that offense is gettable as far as being able to stop them. Darren Waller is a threat, but they really don't have a game-breaking wide receiver that – it's a threat for this team. And the defense, they didn't play terrible as much as the 40 and nothing score would indicate because, like I mentioned, two touchdowns were non-offensive, and they gave up less than 300 yards, but they didn't really stay in the game. The Giants gave that game away in the first quarter. It was ugly with a capital U, and 
I don't know how it could be anybody other than them this week. You leave week one feeling worse about the Giants than you probably feel about any other team that you would have considered to be a contender coming into the season. Yeah, two rough nights in a row from MetLife Stadium. Giants got completely blown out, like you just said, Zach. And then uh, Aaron Rodgers suffers an Achilles injury uh, on the, only the fourth play. Uh, kind of two different fan bases, of course. Uh, you know, if Giants, Jets don't share fans, but still a rough night in that stadium. Uh, both nights were raining. A uh, little bit more on Sunday night than it was Monday night, but still really piss poor uh, days for uh, on both Sunday and Monday night, and just just terrible news uh, and just terrible games overall uh back to back um okay guys great show next on saturday we're gonna have on uh tony smith uh we're gonna talk about the uh, jaguars with him great interview with him coming up and then uh we're also gonna have on mike berman from chicago talking about uh the bears like we just kind of alluded to uh and then we're also going to talk some cubs with him as well uh again as we head into october But uh, until then, guys, uh, keep on traveling, and we'll do this all again on Saturday.